0: Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance, from building a well-balanced college list and developing a payment strategy to creating a high school plan and more. Each episode will help guide your family through various steps of the process. Enjoy the show.
1: Hello, and welcome to Getting in a College Coach Conversation. I'm your host Shannon Vasconcelos. And before we really dig into the meat of the show, I did want to address one quick question that a listener sent us. Um, And the listener asked; they they said, "You often reference your videos of your podcast, but you don't tell us where we can actually watch those videos." (laughs) I thought that was a very good point. We should probably mention that. So, for the record, you're likely listening to this audio podcasts on the Voice America app or Apple Podcasts or Amazon Music, some like that. But we do, in fact, video record each of our segments, and you can find all of those videos on our YouTube channel. If you just search for College Coach on YouTube, you'll find all of our videos there. Um, we started video recording our segments back in 2020, so we've got tons and tons of great content out there that you can really dig into our archives. Uh, we also share out all of those videos on our social Um, channels, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok. You'll find all our videos there as well. So uh, if you haven't seen the videos, check them out. You will find out how devastatingly good-looking all of us here on the podcast are. And I fear now that I've said that, I'm just inviting all of the nasty comments to come in. (laughs) but check us out our videos as well as the audio version of our podcast and we do have a great show coming up for you today in the back half of the show we're going to talk about the college transfer process uh, both how it works at most schools and then also how it specifically works at the university of california uh, who tend to kind of do their own things (laughs) in regards to the college admissions process uh, including the transfer process so stay tuned for that but first Uh, If you are watching the video, I'm dressed for Valentine's Day today, but actually the most important celebration happening in February is Financial Aid Awareness Month. And to help us celebrate Financial Aid Awareness Month today, I would like to welcome our first guest, who is, she's got a lot of titles and stuff going for her. She is the Director of Student Financial Aid at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, She is also national chair of the National Association of Student Financial Aid Administrators, or NASFA, we call it. And as one of my colleagues described her, she is a certified financial aid rock star. (laughs) And her name is Helen Faith. Welcome, Helen. Thank you so much. What an introduction. (laughs) (laughs) I really
2: really need to know how you get that financial aid rock star title. I'm pretty jealous (laughs) of that. I am like actually a certified financial aid administrator. The rock star part is, you know, <laughs> I'll take it, but I don't know of an exam that you get to take for that.
1: <laughs> I love it. And I'm actually,
2: we're going to dig mostly
1: into your, your job at Madison, but I'm actually really curious about the work you do as a national chair for NASFA. What does that job entail?
2: Yeah. So this is an elected position. It's a three year commitment. So you come into the role as chair elect, and I'm currently in the national chair year. So during, during this year, I mean, really the, the meat of what I do is I help to guide the work of the, um, of the association and of the board specifically, the board of directors, which is a mm-hmm. group of financial aid administrators as well, who are both appointed and elected to their positions. Um, so I run the meetings of the board. I, um, I, you know, identify people to chair various committees, Mm -hmm. to and I keep track of the work that these committees and task forces are completing. Um, I do a lot of presenting at various Mm -hmm. regional and state and national conferences. um, And I work really closely with the CEO and, and their team of leaders to make sure that we're really just staying on track with serving the membership, engaging our members and our board members um, and fulfilling our mission um, to really improve financial aid and improve training and professional development provide that sort of, 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 support to our financial aid administrators.
1: That's fantastic. And, and all the administrators out, out there need you more than ever, I'd say, this year, which I, we'll get into a, a little bit. But tell me more about, um, maybe more in a normal year, but you sort of your day-to-day job at, at Madison as the director of student financial aid. What does that job entail?
2: Sure. Um, So UW Madison is, you know, it's a very large institution. We have a large financial aid office. Um, And our office, you know, the work of a financial aid office can vary a great deal. There's always the fundamentals, though, of course, that we are... Packaging financial aid for our students, that we're helping them navigate those processes, that we're helping them make um, decisions so that they can afford to go to college and they can manage their debt and all of that. That work. Our office also does a lot of work in student employment and student engagement to support students to be successful. And um, we support some of the basic needs work, so that's you know when students mm-hmm. have a crisis to cover those basic expenses um, for food and housing, that sort of thing. We're there to also help them to ma- navigate what's available to support them in addition to financial aid. Um, so So in my day-to-day work, I'm really helping to ensure that the work of all of my different teams is moving in the right direction. Right, Mm -hmm. so I'm really Mm -hmm. guiding and directing the work. I have an incredibly wonderful and competent team who can handle all of the operational details. So I'm not deep in the weeds of those operational details, but I'm making sure that every everyone's working in a coordinated way, that we're all staying informed as to what's happening, that we're fulfilling the um, the intent, what we're trying to support in terms of university goals, um, and that Mm -hmm. we're staying true to our own um, our own strategic plan, right? Our our values, our mission, our strategic priorities. Right. So you're serving both the needs of the students
1: and the institution. That's where I think your job um, comes into effect. And you've been in financial aid a long time, for, right? I think 23 yeah. years at, at all sorts of schools. Okay. I mean, <laughs> I'm not calling you old Helen. I, I've been <laughs> a, a, about the same Either. amount of time. <laughs> right. Veteran, you're seasoned. That's right. <laughs>
2: Yeah, we um, try to but, avoid seniors so much. But yeah, we're yes, <laughs> totally.
1: <laughs> um, but I know that you've worked at all sorts of institutions, public, private institutions, health professions, institutions, two year schools, four year schools. What has your experience been working s- over this long period of time, these different types of
2: institution? Has your job changed at all? over the years? Yes, so much. I mean, of course, you know, when you start out, I started out as an entry level employee, right? I was a financial advisor. I did a lot of work really directly with students, you know, both in terms of Phone calls, front desk, email, right? Um, as well as, um, you know, being the person who actually reviewed their financial aid application. And when they were selected for verification, which I'm sure you'll talk about a little bit as well, um, and they had to turn in additional documents, really making sure that they were, um, th- that somebody held their hand through that process, that they understood what was required of them. And then I would be the person to actually review those documents and make any adjustments um, and then offer their aid, work with families through revision processes if they had special circumstances or other mm-hmm. changes that needed to be taken into account. Um, so really all that very boots on the groundwork. Um, so as I progress in my career, I'm moving from that entry level up into a director role um, and working at so many different schools. The, um, the job is very different at different schools, right? Yeah. Um, many of the fundamentals are the same. You still award aid, but the way that you do it is different. The, the people who are assigned to the work, the way that the offices are organized is different. Yes. And certainly when at the director level, um, at the director level at a large flag- flagship public university, um, you're really scanning the horizon in a different way you're um you know a little bit more outward facing um in terms of interfacing not just not just internally with my office but um with the division of enrollment management with all of my partners in that area throughout the institution itself so you know the colleges and schools um making sure that I'm communicating to all of the leaders on campus around um, what they can expect around financially, and how do we support what yes. their goals are as well and how those support the university. Um, and then a lot of external work in terms of, you know, for example, serving my association, serving NASFA, yes. um, working with folks who are more in the kind of um, research and advocacy worlds to ensure that they have a financial aid administrator um, perspective there. Um, and working at all these different types of schools has really just given me a lot of perspective really on, um, on how financial aid really works at different schools how different populations of students are impacted um and just you know the critical role of financial aid but how it is a little bit different um depending on the context yes
1: completely and i've, I've found that when if you've only worked at one college you kind of think the way it works at that college is the way financial aid works right but once you worked at two or three or different institutions you mm-hmm. realize oh there's really is some there's a lot of variety here
2: Right. And different opportunities, different challenges everywhere you go.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of challenges, Ellen, (laughs) I I had planned on asking you, what are the biggest issues, challenges you're seeing (laughs) in in your office these days? I'm going to venture a guess that I can name one of those issues. And that is FAFSA simplification, the the FAFSA rollout. I think regular listeners... (laughs) the very briefest of overused regular listeners know the FAFSA was changed this year. um, And in order to incorporate all those changes, the FAFSA was delayed. It's usually open in October this year, um, not until the very, very end of December. (laughs) And also um, another change on the administrator side of things. We were informed relatively late in the process. We assumed uh, administrators would start receiving FAFSA data as basically as soon as students could complete the FAFSA. Normally that happens within a few days. You complete the FAFSA, your information is available to the colleges that you've indicated you want to receive the FAFSA, you want to receive the data on the FAFSA. Um, This year, the Department of Education told folks colleges will start receiving FAFSA data um, by the end of January. Um, listeners, you're you're hearing this in in early February. We're actually recording January 31st, uh, and we actually heard yesterday from the Department of Education. While I think administrators and <laughs> you can let us know, we're anxiously awaiting the, that first FAFSA data by the end of January. And the Department of Education issued a statement um, informing folks that FAFSA data would begin to be sent to schools by the middle of March. And I think that that really threw all of us for a loop um, and is very much going to delay the financial aid process. So help us out here. (laughs) (laughs) How how is this affecting the financial aid process at UW-Madison?
2: Thank you. And that was a very good introduction to a very complicated subject. Um, And what we, so the Department of Education is referring this to this as better FAFSA, better future, right? And in the end, yes, I do think the FAFSA itself, the process of applying is simpler for most students. We do know that we still have some students and some contributors. Mm -hmm. So for instance, spouses who are unable to get the credentials they need to be able to complete the process online. So that's been difficult. Um, But by and large, the application itself for those who have been able to navigate it is a lot simpler and a lot faster, right? And so that's good. And also the information coming through is more accurate because it's directly pulling in IRS tax data that's not being in any way um, changed by the applicants. And so that should simplify the process as well because when I talked about verification earlier, but that consisted of once upon a time with students turning in and parents turning in tax returns that we then had to go through line by line and compare to the data they put on the FAFSA. So that really takes a lot of the burden out of the process. So I do wanna say it will be in the end simpler (laughs) for folks to get through just right now we're going through a rocky period certainly yeah. Um, and the other big benefit, too, is that in addition to the FAFSA changing, the methodology for determining financial need is changing in a way that's going to benefit a lot of students. Um, we're going to see a lot more students qualify for Pell Grants, and we're going to see more students qualify for maximum Pell Grants and larger Pell Grants overall. So those are all really good things. But this has been a rocky year. <laughs> so um, in in terms of how this is impacting how aid is being processed and, and moved forward, um, you know, clearly we're at a standstill right now. Yeah. Right. We are just waiting. And it's really hard for students in that, you know, many schools have just started to release like early action admission decisions, for example. Mm-hmm. And the next automatic question is, can I afford to go? Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have so much empathy for that situation. You know, I remember being a college student with a long time ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I remember how hard it was to pay for college and to figure out like, where should I go to school and what do all these numbers really mean? Um, and so, you know, all of these folks are calling and we're un- unable to give them any answers quite yet. Um, yeah. And while maybe it's some consolation to know that everybody's in the same boat, when you have your heart set on a school and you don't know if you can go, um, that's a really hard spot to be in. And we've continuously worked in our office to try to get that aid offer out to students as quickly as possible once mm-hmm. they have the admissions decision. So we are at this point, we're waiting. Um, we, Normally, we would have started to get those FAFSA um, data files um, in October. And we would be setting up our systems and, you know, realize it's the same old system year after year, right? In general, like all of the data (laughs) elements were the same, the way that they were calculated was basically the same. Um, And so we have a completely different system in terms of the data elements and how they work together Mm -hmm. and what the calculations are. And so there's the testing of that system that we need to make sure is solid before we start putting aid offers out there. We don't want to put anything inaccurate out there. And then the actual data from the students that we need to test in our system as well, right? So we are, unable to do any of that until we have the actual FAFSA data. And even, you know, uh, what we call test files, basically, where we're supposed Mm -hmm. to receive about um, several, we were told we would receive several hundred test files to work with. Um, We only ever got three from the Department of Education. And so that is also kind of hampered our efforts to prepare. So it really compresses the time period that we have to get aid offers out to students to have Mm -hmm. such a significant delay. Um, And we really want to make sure that we find that right balance of getting aid offers out as quickly as we can, but really making sure that our systems, you know, as I referred to earlier, That they're tested, that everything actually um, works properly, because the last thing we want to do is send out incorrect information and confuse people in the process. Right? We're trying to make such a critical decision, and they're going to have less time as a result as well, right? Students and families will have less time to really compare offers if they're looking at a May 1st deadline at this point. Um, we're very seriously concerned about um, whether students will have adequate time to compare those awards.
1: Uh, I'm... Thinking along the exact same lines and I cannot imagine colleges holding to a May 1st deposit deadline. Um, Have you had obviously this news just came out yesterday. Have you had conversations at UW about that yet. Is there a possibility of extending the deadline.
2: I can't speak to whether there are um, whether a deadline will be extended, but I think there's a very high sensitivity across the board, you know, nationally, especially in enrollment offices that um, that may first may not be reasonable for every student right we yeah. have many students who are lucky enough to be able to make that decision um, without waiting for an aid offer um but that's not true of any of everybody you know yes, at sorry. all <laughs> right <laughs> we have a lot of students who really do need that information to make their decision and so i you know we we saw a lot of flexibilities offered for example during covid when there were so many uncertainties. Yeah. right we all want to make sure that the students that um you know students we really really want to make sure that we're serving students who come from lower income households um you know, that we are giving them every opportunity to make an informed decision. And so, you know, what I would anticipate across, you know, across the country is that at the very least, we'll be looking at at students on a case-by-case basis to offer the flexibility mm-hmm. they need because we don't want to force them to make a decision without the information they need.
1: Completely. And I think the point you make about testing is so important and family, students, parents should be aware of it um, in terms of them having realistic expectations and maybe they hear this they oh colleges will have my fafsa data by march 15th don't be expecting a financial aid offer by march 20th there's a whole extensive process that needs to go into get accessing the data testing the systems um before you can start sending any financial aid offers out
2: and typical cycle, we've had almost three months to do that testing before we start sending out eight offers. So you can imagine the stress of trying to get these out much faster. Um, but, of course, we're doing everything we can in the background to prep. Um, but we have some limitations of what we can, can yeah. provide. Uh, I,
1: I don't envy you. I don't un- envy students and parents. This year is, is definitely a rough one. And, again, as you say, I hope long-term the – the goals of FAFSA simplification of making it easier for students to get the money they need to call it, to go to college, to go to college. I hope that all comes to pass, but it seems like maybe not this year. (laughs) Um, Now you mentioned that there are some significant changes to the FAFSA formula itself. And many, many students will likely gain new financial aid eligibility under the new formula There will be some students that have less financial aid eligibility under the new formula. Are you doing anything different, I'm I'm curious, for your continuing students in terms of the uh, financial aid eligibility review um, because their eligibility might shift significantly from what they have had
2: in the past? Sure. Um, Of course, these efforts are a little bit hampered by the fact that we don't have any actual data yet. So it's hard to say for sure. (laughs) Um, So in terms of what we might do differently for continuing students, it would be similar um, to what we've done just in general over the years when families have significant changes from year to year in their, you know, what historically has been the expected family contribution, what is now the student aid index, right, starting this coming year. Um, So, you know, that means that if a family sees a really big difference, they can reach out to us and we can Look at their information together to figure out is there um is there a special circumstance that we need to consider? you know sometimes we'll see big fluctuations from year to year in a family's um EFC calculation in the past, right? because there was a change in income because there was a change in their household composition. so we would just take the time to to discuss with them what what changed, what drove that change in their expected family contribution um and therefore, you know is there are there any um any revisions that we can make to the information to make it easier for them um, to kind of smooth out that difference. So that's the same thing that we would continue to do Is if a family sees a real, really big difference in how much aid they receive. Um, nice. We would want to drill down to the reasons for that and figure out if we have a way to make some sort of um, accommodation for them. If we can't change their, you know, if we can't work with them to adjust data um, that would influence their their need to contribute to college, then we would work with them to figure out like what other options do they have to, help to fill in some of those financial gaps, right? Do we want to talk about... parent loans, um, any additional maybe right. private student loans? Do we want to talk about, um, you know, saving up over the summer? But what are the various options, other ways to save money while they're in school? For example, one really great way um, that students who maybe their families can't quite come up with the full amount that's expected of them um, can help help to close the difference would be to work as what we call um, a, ho- a housing fellow, I believe it is on our campus, house fellow. <laughs> an RA, right? RA, yep. Typically that will include either um, either an offset for your room and board, or you'll be paid an amount that will cover your room and board, right? And so that can be one way that students right. fill the gap um, that can be created when they have fluctuations like that, or just in general when families are unable to contribute quite as much as the formula might suggest.
1: That's wonderful. And I know one particular change in FAFSA simplification that has got um, a lot of parents very worried, upset, some, some some other choice words <laughs> is the the adjustment uh the the removal of the adjustment to the calculations for having multiple kids in college um can can you talk a little bit um about that and it, from
2: your perspective what's the reasoning behind that change Sure. I'm not sure if I can really speak so much to congressional reasoning, but maybe just kind of provide a little bit of context for that. Um, You know, one thing that, you know, yes, the number in college has historically been a really important element in calculating a family's ability to contribute to college, because if Mm -hmm. you you come up with a contribution of the overall amount a family can afford, and then um, that would typically be divided by the number of folks in the household who are attending college. So that can make a very big difference. Um, However, one of the downsides of that is that typically a family has kids go to school in kind of a staggered fashion. Right. So you might have your first would be one in college. You have a higher contribution that year. The next year you might have two kids in college and both of their contributions would be suppressed. But then when that first kid graduates, then that second kid in college suddenly has a big jump. Right. So in some ways, removing the number in college is helpful in that you won't have those wild fluctuations from year to year um, for a family to figure out how to navigate. And then, you know, the subsequent impact on the student's financial aid. Um, The other piece to keep in mind is that while that number is going away in the calculation, what is going into place are more generous income protection allowances and asset protection allowances. So overall, the family's income and assets should be protected more in calculating what they can afford. So for many families, um, they may not see a significant change, actually, even with taking that number in college out because the formula will be more generous to them overall. So, you know, just kind of address some of those concerns in that way. Another consideration is, and this is something that I heard from um, an economist, Sandy Baum, who's done a lot of work mm-hmm. on financial aid, um, is that when you really think about sort of the fairness proposition of the way that that's been, that number in college has played out in the past, um, fundamentally, the ability of a family with similar income to cover, let's say, triplets who are all going to the co- to college at the same time versus three kids who might be going every four years, mm-hmm. is, you know, is it really equitable to expect the family with kids who are spaced out more to um, to contribute three times as much as a family who has three kids going to school at the same time, right? right. So I think that's also a consideration um, in terms of like, how can we think of this and um, how it operationalizes um, and how maybe the prior formula wasn't as fair as it could be, right? So I'm, I'm not saying it's... Right like we, we herald this change by any means, but it just kind of provides a little bit of context to that. Um, all that being said, um, families are certainly, um, you know, if they're seeing big differences in um, you know, in the SAI, once they receive those numbers mm-hmm. versus EFC, um, because of that number in college change, you know, certainly they can speak to their financial aid office to see, you know, what are the options to help to close those gaps for them that might be resulting from that change. I mean, our offices, you know, we're, we're all, you know, of course. Clearly, we've got a lot going on. We're moving <laughs> as fast as we can, and we'll probably receive yeah. a lot of appeals. Um, but we we would be the best place to ask those questions.
1: That's perfect. I, that's great advice to the students out there. Don't, when you receive your financial aid offer, if it's not what you expected, don't just, oh, I don't have enough financial aid. I can't go to school. Don't make that assumption. Talk to the
2: financial aid office. Um, right. Because we're here to help you put the pieces together and figure out how you can afford college. Absolutely. Now, I could talk about FAFSA simplification
1: all day long, <laughs> but I did just want to briefly touch on another huge change in the world of higher education that went into effect for this um, admissions applications cycle was the the Supreme Court's um, Ruling that race can no longer be considered in the college admissions process. And of course, that's um, the admissions process, not the financial aid process. Has that decision had any impacts on your office, Helen?
2: It's certainly a topic of conversation in the financial aid world um, in general. Um, However, what I would say is that Supreme Court um, case and the decision was silent on the question of whether scholarships are implicated, right? So it really only speaks to admissions decisions. Um, Therefore, there's not a direct connection to financial aid aside from the fact that we could be admitting different students as a result, for example, right? And not necessarily UW Medicine specifically, but just throughout the country um, that this changes the way in which schools are admitting students to some degree.
1: Completely. And we we are very close to being out of time and there's so much that I want to talk about that we didn't get to. If you're interested in UW-Madison, go to their financial aid office website and learn all about all the great financial aid programs that they have there. Uh, and I guess just sort of last minute advice for, we've got lots of students and parents who listen to this podcast, Helen, if they have um, questions or concerns about financial aid, Where can they go for
2: help? Always the aid office. Um, I would say always the aid office of the schools that you're most wanting to attend. Um, We at UW-Madison are very fortunate. You referred to some of our aid programs that are um, really, um, really outstanding aid programs. And we've really put a lot of focus into ensuring that UW-Madison is as affordable as it can be, especially with respect to our in-state students. And I think that's just in general, really good advice for folks across the country um, is look really closely at your in-state public institutions because they often are the the most affordable in many respects. Um, We have a promise program, Bucky's tuition promise that enables any Wisconsin resident student to receive um, four years of tuition and fees covered through combination of federal state and institutional grants and scholarships. um, As long as their adjusted gross income for their household is $65,000 or less, right. Which is essentially the state median. So we really want to put folks minds to rest in terms of the affordability of costs college, um, but do reach out to your aid offices. Do consider, you know, do compare your offers, but also ask um, the aid offices if there are specific concerns that um, are unique to you. You know, if you had a change in your household income recently or other um, Mm -hmm. factors we should be taking into consideration, those are really important points to ask us about.
1: Completely. And that's such a great point. I think that students and parents understandably are Extremely intimidated by the price of college when you look at the sticker price of college. But I think it's so important for families to know that the vast majority of students don't pay full sticker price. There is financial aid available. So absolutely apply for that aid if you have questions about it. Talk to Helen <laughs> or the financial aid officers at, at the colleges where you're interested um, because there is help out there. And that's all the, the time that we have today, Helen. I wish I could talk to you all day. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us, especially during this very, very busy time. And I know a stressful time for both students and parents and stressful for financial aid administrators. So thank you so much for taking the time
2: out of your, your busy, busy day to join us today. Thank you, Shannon, for doing this really great work, work to support families and high school counselors and, you know, as they navigate the college process.
1: Oh, it is my pleasure. And right back at you. And listeners, stick around. We're going to be talking about the college transfer process when we come back. So stay tuned.
0: Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you.
3: For 25 years, families have trusted Bright Horizons College Coach to guide them through the college admissions process. With nearly all of our students getting into one of their top choice schools, it's no wonder why. Our experience is unmatched. As former admissions officers at top colleges and universities, we've read the essays, reviewed the applications, and made the admissions decisions. We know firsthand what colleges are looking for. Ready to meet our team? Visit getintocollege.com slash experts to learn more. In every college application, there's that moment of pause before a student hits send. Is this my best work? With Bright Horizons College Coach, your student will hit submit with confidence. We take the guesswork out of applying to college. Students get help with everything from essays, summer planning and visits, to testing strategy, merit aid, and more. As for our results, 100% of students have earned acceptances, nearly all to one of their top choice goals. Visit getintocollege.com slash experts to learn more. The
0: Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com
1: Welcome back everyone. And I would now like to welcome my two wonderful colleagues to the show. Uh, First of all, former admissions officer at Hamilton and Kenyon Colleges, Jay Bonham, and also former admissions officer at Mount St. Mary's and UC San Diego, Alex Rendon. Welcome Jay and Alex.
4: Oh, welcome. It's great to be here.
1: Thank you so much for having us today. Oh, I'm so excited to have you here today, and we are going to talk about the college transfer process and the game plan, I think, give or take, is uh, we were going to initially have two separate segments, and we said it's funner if we all come together and chat together. But kind of, give or take, Jay's going to address, I think, how the process works at kind of most colleges, and Alex is going to talk specifically about how the transfer process works at the Uh, University of California schools because they like to do (laughs) their own thing for better or worse and I think it's often for better the thing I love about the UC's Alex is I think they tend to be very very transparent about everything they spell everything out and try and make it as clear as possible for families so so that's the awesome thing about the UC's and then Jay you got to represent the other like few thousand schools. Over thousand. Over and all their thousand. different yeah. policies. Yeah. <laughs> no pressure. Though. <laughs> okay. So to start off, I think I'll start with you, Jay. Why in general do people decide to transfer colleges?
4: Yeah. I, I mean, it's a great question and a great place to start because um, there's a couple of main reasons why I think students decide that they want to transfer. The first and foremost are Students who are at a two-year institution and they've completed their education um, at that community college and they're ready to move on to a four-year institution. And so that's really one big pathway that you'll find. Um, Another reason why some students may decide to change institutions is that maybe their academic interests have changed. Mm -hmm. They went to a particular university expecting to be major A or major B, and then they get there and they start taking some courses and they realize that maybe there's, their interests lie in other areas in that their current institution may not have those programs that they're looking for. Um, I mean, hopefully that wouldn't be the case, but I know there will be some instances where it is better for the student to look at another institution um, if they are going to look for some other academic areas. Um, and I think the last sort of main reason for kids to transfer is that, um, and again, As a transfer coordinator, I I hope this would never happen, but there are instances when students just, the fit with that current institution is just not a good one. Um, That maybe they go to a large university and they realize that they'd much rather be in a smaller setting or Mm -hmm. vice versa. Um, And so, again, like the whole goal is not to transfer in that kind of situation, that you want to make sure that your current institution is going to work well for you but at the end of the day, if a student feels as though it's not the right environment, um, then certainly they should look to find an institution where they know they're going to be happy or certainly be successful both academically and also socially, too.
1: That makes perfect sense. And those all seem like really good reasons to transfer. Um, and, Alex, I have heard that the UCs have a lot of transfer students. So can you talk a little bit about why there are so many transfer students at the UCs?
5: Right. So with the UCs, as well as, I think you can probably see this at other large public universities, mm-hmm. part of their educational plan is to support the students going through the community college system. So creating a really clear pathway there. Um, so with UCs and, and California's uh, Master Plan for Higher Education, the um, they're hoping to create a pathway from that two-year college to uh, a UC or a CSU campus. So at the UCs, why we say they, they love transfers is about a third of their population come in as transfer mm. students. So again, just a really great pathway.
1: Totally. And I have heard, correct me if I'm wrong, if your goal is to attend a UC, but maybe you don't have the grades to get in as a freshman. Now that I'm I'm saying it, the scenario is not going (laughs) to make sense, but that it is easier to get into a UC as a transfer from a local community college than from Stanford or another four-year school.
5: Right, exactly. So at the the UC campuses, uh, there is priority for the transfer students given to the California Community College pathway. And why that is, is that student at a California Community College um, at the junior college level doesn't have the option necessarily, um, although there are a few caveats and exceptions here, (laughs) to complete their four-year bachelor's degree at the community college versus the student at Stanford or any other university, (laughs) they already have that pathway to complete that four-year degree. So the community college will have precedent and about 91% of transfers come from the California community college level at the UCs.
1: Hmm. So that actually gets to, I was just about to ask you, what is there a typical UC transfer student? And is it, I, I guess it's someone who has started at a community college? Yes,
5: I'd say, yeah. obviously, by the
1: numbers, that's the most common pathway. It is a
5: very clear cut pathway in knowing exactly what classes you need to take to, to transfer. Um, so Uh, I'd say that is the the typical student. But then as Jay mentioned before, there's also students who are transferring from um, out-of-state colleges. There may be the student who is transferring from UC to UC um, or other four-year universities. So there are space for those students. Um, So still absolutely encourage you, if you're not at the California Community College, still apply if you're interested in the UC.
1: Totally. So what does Jay the typical transfer um, application process look like?
4: Yeah, I, I mean, it, it will be for, for students who are coming from, who applied to four-year colleges or at a four, four-year college, the process is going to be similar to what they experienced when they applied as, as a first-year student. Mm-hmm. Um, so there'll be an application they'll have to fill out. Um, if they use the common application to apply to schools, there's a transfer version of the common application Mm. so just when they thought they were done with the common application (laughs) they're going to have to get back into that system um but it's a little more streamlined of course for the transfer process um they'll of course have to submit their um their transcripts both their completed transcript from high school and then also whatever uh, work they've done in college now certainly the academic work that you've done in college will be given more weight in the admission process as a transfer. Mm -hmm. That is not to say that they'll ignore your, your high school record, but certainly I think for a student who maybe is using the college experience as a way to increase their, their their academic performance, that certainly the college that you might be looking at, they're going to give more weight to what you've done within that, within that college setting. Um, and then some universities, for the transfer process, they'll, there'll be some essays. Um, there'll mm-hmm. be a sort of a main sort of like, why do you want to transfer essay that you'll have to complete? And then some colleges, universities will have other supplemental essays. Um, uh, some schools will also ask for like updated grades. So depending on when you're transferring, mm-hmm. they will have like the, the previous semester's worth of grades but then they may ask for like a what they call like a mid like a midterm grade report, where basically you're going to be going to your professors and getting uh, sort of uh, sort of a, 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 par- a part in time where what grades you have at that point, just so they can so the university can make sure that your current semester is going well, um, uh, the same as it's done in, in previous years.
1: And. You brought up the, you may have a, why do you want to transfer essay that immediately sprung to mind. Are there any specific tips that you have for such an essay? I I am immediately picturing someone writing all about why they hate the
4: school that they are at. Is
1: is that a good strategy, guys? No, I, I mean,
4: that's a really good point. I mean, I always tell students that you want to be positive in in that kind of response. You want to talk about why like the school that you want to go to is going to be a better fit for you compared to, I mean, saying negative things about your current institution. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can talk about why your current institution may not be the right fit for you, but there's a proper way of doing it. (laughs) I mean, you can do it in a way that, again, you're, that you're positive, that you just know that you'd be better served by another institution um, because it, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't make you look good. It doesn't, I, I don't think the admission officer reading your application, I don't think they're going to be terribly fond to hear mm-hmm. about these negative things about yeah. your current institution. But I think w- what you want to do is focus on the reason why another institution would be a better fit for you and, and not talk about all the, the negatives of your current place.
1: That makes sense. Um, and Alex at the UC, so Jay talked about the common app and there's a version for transfers. So the UCs have their own UC app. What is the process different for transfer students than a first year applicant to the UCs? Yes. Yeah, so the UCs, they will have their own application. Um,
5: I will say it's it's a very similar process. So for those students who applied in high school, it will be very similar for the transfer process. You know, you'll start off with the application um, with an about you section, which gets to the heart of, you know, some demographics. um, What's your address? Those things that we just have to know. Um, There's a section for your academic history. So you'll list all of the colleges or universities that you've attended, and you'll also self-report all of your grades there. So that might be a little bit different from the common application where maybe you're sending in a transcript right away. Um, there's a place for activities and awards. Um, so the difference here than, you know, a first-year application, we want to really focus on what have you done since you've graduated high school? So what have you done at the college level? Um, and then there's a scholarships page, um, as well as the personal insight questions. So this is actually the area where I'd say, yes, there there is a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, with the first-year application, you know, there are four questions you choose um, to respond to out of eight options for the transfer process, there is one required question and three additional questions you can choose from. So what's that required question? I know you're all biting your nails on the edge of your seat. <laughs> um, it has to do with your intended major. So what have you as a student done to prepare for that intended major?
1: Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So Mm that it's more of it seems like maybe there's they're expecting you to know exactly what you want to do, Mm -hmm. at least in terms of major at the UCs, maybe more so. Yes,
5: yes. To um, a a great extent, um, I would say you want to know what you're going to major in when you're applying and really think about that as you're journeying through your um, initial college experience. And why that is, is you do have to select a major to apply to on the UC application. And um, If you get to to a UC campus and say, hey, actually, I wanted to switch my major to this instead, uh, that's not going to be an option. So you do have Mm -hmm. to do that kind of soul searching early Mm -hmm. on in that college process. And also there may be certain majors where you have to take prerequisite courses or major prep in order to apply. Um, So it is really important to look into that as you're going through the application process and before as you're planning your courses.
1: Got it. And I'm guessing it's not necessarily the case. Now, Jay is speaking for like now a few thousand schools. (laughs) Everybody.
4: (laughs) (laughs) No, I I mean, one thing I was thinking is that in some ways, because a student is transferring either after their first year or after their second year, they're at that point when they have to make that decision about like, because if you're going to be transferring, especially like as a new junior, like your third year, that is the point at which you are starting to really focus in on what your major is. Yeah. And so, I mean, certainly there'll be schools and certainly the places where I worked, we weren't necessarily admitting kids as transfer students for a particular major. It was just because being a liberal arts school, we wanted to give kids mm-hmm. that flexibility. But certainly by that point, they need to know like what they want to be doing. And so right. certainly the transfer students are much more focused on again, what they want to get out of their education and where they, what direction they want to go in. So right. I think for other universities, it may not be as explicit as it might be yeah. for like the UCs, but I think students definitely need to know what they're going to do because they only have a short amount of time to complete right. that, that, that experience.
1: And speaking of time, Jay, what is the, the timeline for the, the transfer yeah. process? Yep.
4: Yeah. so I, I mean... Usually, um, well, first of all, most universities would would want you to have at least a full semester of grades and courses under your belt. So there's mm-hmm. not many universities that would allow, and, and there will be some, some exceptions, but most students will transfer after they've completed the first full year or mm-hmm. like a second year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so under those circumstances, the deadlines are going to be I, they range, but probably February, March, um, some large universities may even go into like April. Um, and so basically that would be for, for you to enter that following fall. Oh, so you'd be applying yep. by the say March timeframe, you'll hear like in April, and then you would enroll at the new new university in that fall semester.
1: Got it. And Alex, I'm guessing, <laughs> that there's like a very specific timeline for the UCs, am I right? Yes,
5: you're you're definitely <laughs> right there. Again, uh, all about structure, all about yeah. data. Um, so for the, the UCs, the timeline is going to be um, similar to the first years in that your application is up and available August 1st to start working on. The filing period is October 1st um, through November 30th and typically transfers are going to receive their admission decisions uh, in the month of April or so. So by June, they'll be able to hopefully make a commitment to uh, an institution.
1: And I'm guessing no mid-year transfers? Uh, Typically no,
5: there may be some one-off exceptions Mm -hmm. from year to year, but typically you want to plan on applying for the fall term. Got it,
4: perfect and i miss, and I'll, go ahead oh i, I was going to say one thing about the sort of the mid mid year transfers i mean th- they do exist and so like mm-hmm. if you're at an institution and you are i mean utterly miserable <laughs> i mean don't <laughs> feel as though you have to i mean again we hope it doesn't come to that but don't feel as though yeah. you have to stay there i mean there would be some schools that would accept kids sort of in for a january semester or maybe you might say maybe go back home take some classes in that spring mm-hmm. term, and then follow that process where you trans you would, uh, submit transfer applications like in March, and then start a new place in the in the fall. Mm-hmm. So I don't want feel I don't want people to feel as though they have to be mm-hmm. stuck in their institution if it's if it's not a good fit, right?
1: That makes sense. And I think a very, very important issue to think about if you're going to transfer is will the courses that you've taken at your first institution yes. give you credit at the next institution? So Jay, how do you know if your courses will transfer?
4: Yeah, I mean, this is, a this is, I mean, after you're admitted, this is the, like, and you're excited, this <laughs> is sort of the next thing you need to find out. And there's a couple ways you can do that actually before you actually get an offer of admission. Um, there is a website called Transferology, um, which, to be honest, when I was doing the transfer process, it wasn't around. <laughs> um, so, but this is the website where you can go on and sort of input your classes, and you could get sort of a sort of a, a sneak peek into the schools you're applying to to see whether or not those classes are going to transfer to that new institution. Um, but then the other thing that will happen is that When you apply, your transcript will be, your college transcript will be sent to either that college university's registrar's office or it might be done within the admission office, but they will evaluate your transcript. So if you are offered admission, they will tell you exactly like how many of your credits will transfer, what what will go towards different uh, maybe requirements that that new institution is going to have. But you definitely want to know, like, what what's going to happen because it has academic implications. You want to know, like, you're going to get the right classes, that you're set for your major, financial implications. <laughs> like, you want to make sure that you don't have to stay, like, an extra year or an extra yeah. semester. Um, so, yeah, this is important part. Any questions you have, reach out to the admission office. Every admission office will have someone... I mean, like myself, when I worked at admissions, who mm-hmm. was the transfer coordinator, and could help you to answer questions and or put you in the, in contact with the right people. So it's not something you have to do sort of on your own.
1: How about at the UCs, Alex? I I bet they've got a website that spells it all out.
5: (laughs) Yes, I will say um, for if you're a California Community College student, your best friend is going to be something called assist.org. And -hmm. that is because it tells you exactly what courses at your community college will transfer to the UC or um, the CSU system. So again, making that pathway really transparent and easy. Um, If you are transferring from one UC to another, so say um, we're at UC Irvine and wanna transfer to UC Santa Cruz, know that between the UCs, all of your classes will always transfer because they're UC classes. Um, And then if we are an out-of-state student potentially or at a different four-year institution, um, while there aren't those kind of formal articulation agreements, uh, what students can do is take a look at uh, their courses they've taken, take a look at their syllabus and compare that to uh, the course catalog at the UC system. If the content seems to be very similar, likely we're going to see a transfer there. Um, so there's no really clear cut pathway. It will happen you know, after the application is evaluated. So I know that's always a point of frustration yeah. mm-hmm. uh, for students is they want to know exactly what transfers. But unfortunately a lot of work does have to go into that process to, to make sure it will all transfer.
1: Yep. And I've heard um of something called the tag program. Um at the UCs, Alex. What did, what does it mean to tag to a UC? <laughs> Yes, yes. So uh, the UCs, absolutely as many
5: colleges do, love acronyms. So TAG (laughs) is the Transfer Admission Guarantee. So when you TAG a UC, essentially uh, that means if you meet all of the requirements for that UC campus, you have a guaranteed admission. Um, So all of the UCs, with the exception of UC Berkeley, UC UCLA, and UC San Diego have tag agreements in place. Um, so you can absolutely, you know, tag one of the other UCs and still apply to these three campuses, though. They just don't have that guarantee in Got place. Um, I will say a question that comes up for a lot of students um, who want, you know, a specific computer science major, there may be limitations on major specific tags. So that's something if you're doing some of this research, you do want to make that you're looking into to see if there are any restrictions on the tag for that particular campus. But again, such a great pathway to know that you have that guaranteed spot.
1: For sure. And I've got, we have like 30 seconds, so I'm hoping it's going to be a quick answer. There's another acronym, Alex. If a student's at a California community college, are they required to complete the IGETC to transfer to a UC?
5: Exactly. So um, that's another one of those acronyms. Um, You may hear it pronounced IGETC. Essentially, that is the um, Intersegmental General Education Transfer Curriculum. Do you have to complete it? Absolutely not. Um, Is it an option? Yes. Um, And it can help with some of those general education courses uh, when you transfer. So I'd encourage students
1: to, to look into it, but no, it's not a requirement. Got it. Perfect. And if students have questions about all this, talk to the transfer coordinator at the admissions office (laughs) across the board. Absolutely.
5: Yep. I'd say reach out to any of the the UC campuses. Um, Reach out if you're at a community college to your um, transfer center. They'll be happy to help advise you there. (laughs)
1: Awesome. Thank you so much, Jay and Alex. We're totally out of time, but thank you for joining us and for all this awesome advice for students who might be thinking of transferring. Thank you, listeners, for joining. Uh, If you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. We appreciate your feedback. And also, please join us next week when we're going to be discussing how to stay safe on your college campus, uh, what homeschooled applicants need to know about the college admissions process, and then we will continue to celebrate Financial Aid Awareness Month uh, by talking about how to decipher your financial aid award letter so please tune in then and remember we are here every thursday at 4 p.m 4 p.m eastern 1 p.m pacific thanks everyone bye-bye bye
0: thank you for tuning in to getting in a college coach conversation New episodes drop every Thursday. The goal of this show is to demystify the college admissions process for families around the globe. To help with this mission, please leave a review and share with your friends. And to learn more about Bright Horizons College Coach, visit getintocollege.com.